As you'll, as you'll know, uh, during our summers, our youth go to Soul Survivor, and a group of us have been going down to Naturally Supernatural Conference. And there's a phrase there that they use that I love, that I wish that we had come up with, but we didn't. And there's nothing new under the sun, so I'm going to share it with you anyway. Because I feel like it would be a, it's a good thing for us to remember, and um, I would just say that it's actually something that I want to live my life by. And they say, uh, we don't take ourselves very seriously, but we take God very seriously. And that is what we're really aiming for here. We, 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 you know, that's why we have a bit of a laugh and that sort of thing. And so if you're here for the first time, and it's a little bit different to how you might have imagined church might be, or what you think church should be, uh, well, that's what we're all about. We want to take God so, so seriously, but we have to be able to to laugh at ourselves along the way, and I believe that that's actually a gift from God. So this morning, uh, we're continuing a series in Mark's Gospel. We're in Mark chapter 8. If you want to turn uh, with me to Mark chapter 8, as I got asked this morning if I had a new Bible. I don't have a new Bible. It's kind of like a new old Bible, but at least it's not falling apart like last week's one was. I realized that there's just no way that I can do chapter 7 or 8, and then I'm on holiday for a week, and and Bill's preaching from chapter 9 next week. So I'll be back to my original Bible um, as of uh, two weeks' time. But this is what it says in uh, Mark chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Uh, Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. Remember that word compassion uh, is that kind of gut-wrenching Uh, compassion that we thought about a couple of weeks ago. Jesus has that again. This time it isn't for the sick man. It isn't for the people who are like sheep without a shepherd. It's for the hungry people. Um, And he says, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough? bread to feed them. How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. And, I, and it's just kind of a drop in here, but the fact that they, they were satisfied just really hit me during the course of this week. When Jesus feeds them out of his compassion for the fact that they are hungry, he doesn't just give them enough to get home. Do you know what I mean? It's not like here's, here's a snack that will keep you going until you get home. When Jesus provides for us, he provides to the point of satisfaction. And, and in the prayer meeting on Tuesday night, we were t- somebody was telling the story about a friend of theirs. I think it was uh, like food shopping for uh, the food bank or something like that. And they were with their young daughter and they went and they picked up Uncle Ben's rice for them at home. And then they said, oh, and, and they picked up value rice. And the young daughter said, you know, why are you picking, what, who's the value? value rice for? And they said, oh, that, that's for the food bank, okay? And, 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 the, and the little girl said, if it's not good enough for us, it's not good enough for God. And, and, I, and, I, and that story just hit me again this week as I was preparing for this. God feeds us until we are satisfied. And so when we feed people in the name of Jesus, let's not just feed, you know, if you eat the value stuff, fantastic. But if you don't, then don't give it, you, you don't give it to God, you know, David says, uh, I, I won't offer a sacrifice to God that costs me nothing. <laughs> don't just give God what you don't value. Give God what you do value. Uh, so Jesus fed them and they were satisfied. Afterwards, 
the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. Remember, that doesn't include women and children. And having sent them away, Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply. And again, sorry, just, you know, there's so much in here. This is my way of getting extra stuff in without actually having to make it a point in the talk, by the way. But when Jesus sighs deeply, this is a sign of the fact that Jesus is in a spiritual battle. We saw this last week. You might remember that when Jesus um, stood with the, the deaf and mute man, and it says that he sighed. He looked up to heaven and he sighed and he said that word, ephaphra, if I'm pronouncing it right. And, and what the commentators say is that this is a sign, that deep sigh is a sign uh, of the fact that all is not right, that something is wrong here, and it, and it reflects the spiritual battle that is going on. And, and it's a repeat. We thought about this in the first week, that Jesus is in a spiritual battle. But even as he continues through the writing down this account, Mark is wanting to remind us, this is spiritual. What happened when the deaf and mute man was healed? It wasn't just a physical healing. It was a spiritual battle. Sin, uh, although not necessarily that man's own sin directly, but sin is the cause of deafness and muteness. Sin is a cause of the fact that the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and tempting him. And if Jesus is in a battle, in a spiritual battle, then so are we. Let us not forget that. So they came to him. They tested him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth. No sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he'd spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, 
and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth. Some of you who are standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God come with power. Jesus, we thank you so much for your life, for your death, for your resurrection, for your ascension, and the fact that you are seated at this very moment at the right hand of the Father and you are praying for us. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you sent your only son to die for us. And that through him, your call to each of us is to come. Come join my family. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you spoke through the prophets that you inspired the writers of Scripture and that you continue to lead us into truth. And we pray that you would take my words now, that you would make them your words, that you would use them for your glory and to teach your people more of what it is to be your faithful followers in this generation. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It really is so good to see some different faces, some new faces, some faces who are returning after a while away, or some faces who I just recognize come from time to time. It is great to have you here. And just to bring you very quickly up to speed with what we're doing at the moment, we're doing a series in Mark's Gospel, and it is called Re-Jesus. And the reason it is called Re-Jesus is twofold. Firstly, it's called Re-Jesus because it is about Jesus. And, and we all, at, from time to time, get letters or emails, and it says re dot, 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 dot. 
And, and so this is a letter that is re-Jesus. In other words, it is all about Jesus. It, it, sorry, it's a series that is about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. It is us going, uh, you know, Jesus, will you tell us who you are? Uh, but it is also called re-Jesus because it is about re-Jesusing ourselves. Because the hypothesis, if you like, that, uh, that led to this series was the fact that we all take who we think Jesus to be. And, and this means every single one of us, whether you're a Christian or not, that we all take who we think Jesus to be and then and, and make our minds up about him. And it might be to deny him. It might be to say yes to him. It might be to say, I'm going to live for him. It might be how we, how we do this thing called church. It might be how we, how we do family life, how we do friendship life, how, just how we do everything. But we, we build it on a, on a false picture of who Jesus is. Um, we, we build it on a picture of, of how Jesus has been passed on to us. And it isn't to say that Jesus hasn't been passed onto us faithfully or by people who love him and we're seeking to know him more. But, but, the, but the bottom line is that we all get stuff wrong. And, and when it comes to Jesus, we have 2,000 years of tradition and there's nothing wrong with tradition necessarily. Uh, but sometimes there is because, you know, it's a little bit like if something starts, you know, half a degree off. If we get it half a degree wrong about Jesus today, but continue on that trajectory for the next 2,000 years, we are going to be miles away from who Jesus actually is. And there's been something of that in the church. It isn't a criticism necessarily. It's just a fact. People get stuff wrong. As I said last week, I think it was, it is possible to be sincerely wrong. And so what we're doing in this series is is we are kind of like recalibrating ourselves in terms of who Jesus really is. Jesus is the plumb line. He is the cornerstone. He is the one on whom we want to build, not who we think he is, what we think he should do, and and how we've always received him to be. I came across this quote uh, during the week. Jesus is the expected Messiah in the most unexpected manner. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is the expected Messiah. He is the one who is, who, who is being waited for. He is the one who the world is longing for, even if they don't know it. Paul writes in, uh, yeah, in Romans, all of creation is groaning. Creation is expecting Jesus. Creation is expecting Messiah. Creation is expecting release. He is the expected Messiah in the most unexpected manner. And so the whole point of this, of this series through Mark's gospel is that we're saying, Jesus, who are you really? Not who does Nick think you are. Not who does the church leaders think you are. Not who do the Baptist Union think you are. Not who does the church in all the world think you are as we have received you, as we have inherited you. Although there will be much that is right in all of those things. But who are you really and what does that mean for our lives? And it is so challenging (laughs) It is so challenging. I've got a friend who's also preaching through Mark at the moment. And I listened to his talk on Mark chapter 8 during the week. And and he had one point. And I know, right, that it is good teaching practice to have one point. I know that. I know that I should have one point and I should tell you what it is at the beginning. And then I should make it again and and again and again. And then I should get to the end and tell you what it was again. Okay. I know that good teaching practice would say that I should give you one point every Sunday. That that's... 
that even one point is more than we could take in. And yet there is so much in this. And so I almost want to say, please forgive me in a sense, but please understand why we're doing this. Because the fact of the matter is that different people will take different things away. That the Holy Spirit will lay different things on different people's hearts. That the emphasis that you will each take is slightly different. And so although I would love to say that we were going to be doing Mark for the next 10 years in order that we might cover, I was going to say all of the points, but we still wouldn't cover it all. But we're not doing that because, well, we're not because you'll just get, you know. Um, So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to race through some things and then at the end we are going to pause for a little bit longer on what I believe are just such important themes for us out of this Uh, chapter here in Mark. And so the first thing that that we see as we read uh, Mark chapter 8, and we see this throughout the gospel anyway, but just the first thing that might hit you or certainly hit me is this. Jesus wants us to grow up in him. Jesus wants us to grow up in him. You remember where Paul says, uh, God doesn't want you just to keep on spiritual milk. He doesn't want you to remain spiritual infants. He doesn't want you to remain spiritual babies. Isn't it amazing seeing Donna Marie, I don't want to embarrass you Donna Marie, but growing up in the Lord is fantastic. It's such a joy to see. I was able to just speak over her. And again, just for your encouragement, Donna Marie, some of the stuff that she's got written in that book, I said to her, Donna Marie, there are people who have been Christians 50 years who haven't grasped some of what she is grasping. And, and, and that's just a fact because some of us stay where we were at the very beginning. We don't grow up. And yet Jesus longs for all of us to grow up in him. It's why one of those great old hymns is, it says, change from glory into glory. It's this process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And yet as one writer puts it, what we see here in Mark chapter 8 is the fact that it is the arrested development of the disciples. Because if you, if you weren't here, this is not the first miraculous feeding in Mark's gospel. There's been one just a few chapters before. Liberal scholars would try and tell you that what really is happening here is Mark's making the second one up or he's, he's telling us the same thing again. But that's not true because there are significant differences. There's differences around numbers of the 4,000 compared to 5,000. There's difference in terms of the, uh, the number of baskets that get left. There's difference in terms of the numbers of food. There's even difference in what the disciples say. Do you remember what the disciples said in the first one when Jesus says about the 5,000? You remember what he said? The disciples said, where, that's gonna, where are we going to get the money from? They said, it would cost eight months wages to feed that many people. And, and what I actually think happened is the disciples are just looking for excuses. They haven't forgotten necessarily. They just want an excuse because they get to 4,000. Oh, Jesus wants to feed the 4,000 again. What are we gonna, what's our excuse going to be this time? Because I know that if we say there's not enough money, he's never going to get it. So this time, they hit him with a new excuse. Where in this wilderness are we going to find enough food for them? And this is the point about the arrested development of the disciples. Instead of going, wow, Jesus fed 5,000 people on that occasion, even though we didn't have the money. He can do it again even in the middle of nowhere. They come up with another excuse. And I wonder that we aren't all a little bit like that. Again, just to quote one of the people I was reading this week, the disciples are the mirror image of the disciples who Mark is writing to, the disciples in Rome who Mark is writing to, and they are (laughs) who are no less obtuse or subject to confusion than modern day disciples. 
I am obtuse and I am subject to confusion. And I know that the only ones of you who aren't are liars. Jesus wants us to grow up in him. Jesus wants us to be transformed by him. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more like Jesus you should be. And so at the very outset, can I simply ask that you would go away and do a little inventory in your own life and say, am I growing in Jesus? Am I growing up in him? The second uh, thing that we see here, just really quickly, is this, that Jesus is the great provider. Those of you who know uh, anything about the Old Testament will know that one of the names by which God reveals himself to to creation, and and it happens with Abraham, uh, is Jehovah Jireh, God who provides, the Lord who provides. And and if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that that came from uh, from an incident where Abraham is, is challenged by God to sacrifice his son, and he takes his son Isaac up on a mountain, and, and Isaac says, you know, where's the, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And, and Abraham says to him, the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh. And eventually, instead of sacrificing his son, a ram is caught up in the thicket, and, and Abraham sacrifices the ram. And if you didn't know, but I'm sure you all do, this is a picture, this is a foreshadowing of God providing the Passover lamb, of God providing the, the lamb without blemish on the cross thousands and thousands of years later. And so the, the context for God's provision and the context for Jehovah Jireh has to be uh, G- God's provision for us in terms of setting us free from sin. It isn't just saying, oh, God provided me with a new car. Okay? That is not Jehovah Jireh at, at its kind of, at, it, at, at its biblical best, shall we say. It isn't saying, oh, God provided me with some chocolate on Pastor's Appreciation Sunday or whatever it might happen to be. It's saying, God provided for me by making atonement for my sin, by taking his, my sin on his shoulders, by taking my sin away, by taking the, the punishment that should uh, rightly and justly have been mine. That is God's great act of provision for for each of us. That is the way in which God supremely provides for us. Never let us take this word God provides and, and, and just almost like um, trivialize it with God gave me a new watch. God gave me this, gave me that. But, and there is a but to this, because God does love to give us good things. Again, just a quote, many Christians fail to appreciate and appropriate this personal concern that God has for them. God cares deeply for every single part of your life. Do you know that? Wow. About four of you know that. God cares deeply for every single area of your life. I meet some incredible women in my, in my work. In my, I, I hate even thinking of it in that sense. But some incredible women in my role as pastor. And they are prayerful. And, they, and it's not saying that men aren't as well. And they are prayerful. And they pray almost without ceasing for the church. But one of the things that they sometimes say to me is, Oh, I, I don't pray for myself. You know, I... 
I don't want to bother God with stuff for myself. And, and, and what I want to say to them is, well, you should. And I do say that to them. I say, you should pray for yourself because God cares about every single need of your life. Yes, the ultimate provision is new life made possible for us only in and through Jesus. Yes, there are bigger problems in the world than yours. Almost, you, you know, have you ever thought about the fact that There's only actually one person who doesn't have bigger problems than you in the world. And the chances are that you aren't the person at the worst end of the scale. So there's always or almost always somebody worse off than you. But God cares. God cares about your need. That's why when Jesus' disciples say to him, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? He says, one of the things that you're to pray is give us today our daily bread. Because he does care. We don't hear of people in the Bible being rebuked for asking too much of God or for asking too frequently. It's not like God is like, oh, will you do? In fact, the very opposite. We see parables and teaching of Jesus that says to us, ask more, nag more, come more. Jesus provides ultimately through his life, death, and resurrection, but he also cares about your daily needs. Please don't forget that. God cares for you intimately and cares about every part of your life. He's the great provider, but he also, and this is so amazing and so challenging all at the same time, he also uses us to be the bringers of that provision. In in these two miracles, if we're thinking of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus doesn't just click his fingers. I assume he could have done. He doesn't, you know, it's not like, I remember when we were kids and there was like talk about um, how one, oh no, it was in a, there wasn't talk about, it was in a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Uh, but <laughs> there was kind of talk about, because like we went to NASA when we were on choir tour and, and like we got these like condensed meals and you put a bit of water on them and they suddenly come alive into like a full Sunday. But that, no, that was at NASA. But um, Tom and Jerry, like, they had a pee on a plate and they tipped water on it and they literally had a roasting hot dinner. Jesus could have done that, but without the pee, but he doesn't. Jesus actually says, what have we got? Go and find something. And then he says to them, share it out, take it out, gather it up. And, and, and God is the God who provides, and yet he dares. And it, and, it, and it is a dare on his part. He dares to use us in this process. So, so when you walk past somebody in the street, when you see somebody who needs feeding, when you walk past somebody and they're shivering because it's raining, you can't just think, oh, well, Jehovah Jireh has taken away my sin, but he also cares about that person's needs. I'm just going to pray. Because God, again and again through Scripture and again and again through, through human history, uses people to pour out his blessing. So, you know, there's a, there's a fantastic quote uh, that I remember from days in college. And it talks about how uh, you can't go up to the Dalites in India. They're the lowest caste in India, I believe. You can't go up to them and say, oh, look, Jesus is the bread of life. If you don't actually give them bread as well. And so I know that so many of us and all of us I'm sure would walk through town and we're praying for people that we see and we want, to, we want people to encounter Jesus. But, but what Mark is reminding us in these stories, in these true stories, in his recalling of them, is that God is the God who provides but he uses his people to do that. 
We can't just spiritualize it all. We can't just say, oh yeah, Jesus, you're the bread of life and not put a hot meal in someone's lap. We can't say, oh, you know, God, you're the God who provides shelter, but not try and help and find ways of doing that. God dares to use his people. The Christian life as a disciplined rhythm of living with and living for Jesus involves not only being fed, but in turn being somebody who helps God in his ongoing work of feeding and by doing so in showing God's love to the world. Jesus wants us to grow up in him. He's the great provider. He uses us in that work of providing. And then Jesus challenges our worldviews. You know, the Pharisees, they say to Jesus, give us a sign from heaven. And what the Pharisees wanted is they wanted, they wanted like heaven to split open sort of thing. And they wanted uh, God to intervene in such a way that he killed their enemies. He, 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 uh, he destroys the enemies of Israel, the Romans in particular, but everybody else who has ever challenged Israel. And, and, Jesus, and Jesus wants that to happen. And he's, uh, sorry, not Jesus. The Pharisees want that to happen because they believe that that is what the true Messiah is going to do. And then Peter also reveals his worldview to us when uh, Jesus says, well, okay, yes, I'm the Christ, okay? Uh, You've said so, Peter. And then he starts saying about how he needs to suffer. And Peter says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be victorious. The Messiah is going to be leading an army. The, the Messiah is going to conquer our enemies, not die on a, on a, on a cross put up by our enemies. And, and what Jesus says to him is, get behind me, Satan. And what's happening in both of these instances, Jesus is massively challenging their worldview. Jesus is saying, do you know what? Your picture of me, again, it's the heart of this series, your picture of me is all wrong. Um, there's an extra biblical book, and it's called the Psalms or the, uh, of Solomon. And this is what it says in there, talking about uh, the, who the Jews thought the Messiah was going to be. See, Lord, and raise up from them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. Undergird him with the, this, with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction, in wisdom and in righteousness to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners like of potter's jar, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the unlawful nations with the word of his mouth. At his warning, the nations will flee from his presence, and he will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their hearts. That's what the Jews thought the Messiah should be. I don't know why I'm waving that, but that's what they thought the Messiah was going to do. He is going to destroy our enemies. He is going to redeem Jerusalem. He is going to make it possible for us to live our special life as God's chosen people. And yet Jesus says, no. That is not what my Messiahship looks like. That is not what God's Messiahship looks like. Essentially, what the Pharisees are asking for, what Peter is indicating, and what so many of us do when it comes to Jesus, is that we want Jesus to give us proof of what we want him to be. We take our lives, we take our assumptions, we take 
our passions and our desires and we turn to Jesus and we say, will you justify my view, my theology, my way of living? But Jesus challenges our worldviews and says, get on page with mine. And then we just get to these just two things just to finish with, but absolutely massive things. You see, Jesus, after, after saying to the Pharisees, no sign is going to be given to you. And the irony is that there's been sign after sign after sign anyway through Mark's gospel so far. So far, it's like, if you can't see them, you're not going to see anything. It's like he says, you know, even if someone raised, was raised from the dead, you wouldn't get it. And they didn't. But then uh, it says that Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? And then we get these brilliant words. They say John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophets. But who do you say I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the King. And to understand this, we need to just kind of, I just want to quickly dig into a little bit of the kind of context here. You see, Caesarea Philippi, uh, the name is kind of a little bit of a giveaway, but Caesarea Philippi has been renamed Caesarea Philippi. It used to be uh, named after Pan, who was a, a pagan god, and it had a temple to the worship of Pan. It was a huge center of pagan cult worship. And then uh, uh, King Herod, uh, who was Philip's father, Philip is the governor of that area or the king of that area at this point uh, that we're reading at. King Herod builds a temple, but it is not a temple to Pan, it is a temple to Caesar. Okay, it's basically uh, King Herod's way of, um, how do we politely say it, uh, kissing Caesar's backside, Okay. And, and, and so he builds this temple to Caesar. And then after Herod dies, his son Philip takes over this part of, of, of Israel. And it's right on the edge of Israel. It's far, as far away from Israel as it's possible to get and still be in Israel. And he takes over and he thinks, okay, I'm going to continue in the butt kissing thing. But at the same time, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna put myself up as something. And so he renames it Caesarea, Caesar, Philippi, Philip. And so Caesarea Philippi is, is, if you like, an ode to two other kings. Caesar, king of everything. Philip would be king of this area. And suddenly we realize that when, when, when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the one who is calling uh, uh, and proclaiming and living out God's kingdom and saying that this is the kingdom in which he is going to reign and rule, that, that this is actually an incredibly subversive thing. That in the sense in the shadow, sorry, in the shadow of Caesarea Philippi, in the shadow of a city that was all about Caesar and all about Philip, all about earthly kings, Peter is proclaiming, you, Jesus, are the king. And we cannot get our heads around that living in 21st century Scotland, okay? Because we could go outside of our parliament buildings and we could say, oh, you know, Nicola Sturgeon, you're nothing and we don't believe in your policies and we don't believe that you are a great leader and all of those things. And we would be allowed to do it so long as we don't actually become kind of like inciting 
violence or hatred or however you put it. But we would be allowed to do that. We have freedom of speech. We can have people at royal weddings protesting against the monarchy because that is the culture in which we live in. Transplant yourself to North Korea. Okay, do you think that when Kim Jong-un is out for a stroll and he's got his rockets and he's got his army and everything, do you think you're allowed to go and stand in the street and go, "Um, by the way, Kim, over here, uh, I don't think that you should be our ruler. Of course you can't. It's a ridiculous thing. It's like when Hitler was in, was in power in, in, uh, in Nazi Germany. You couldn't just stand there and say, oh yeah, Hitler, uh, you can't do your thing. And we need to get our head around that we cannot understand this passage. We cannot understand the subversiveness of this passage. We cannot understand the radicalness of this passage and of Peter's utterance unless we can transplant ourselves into a place that says, if you don't worship Caesar, if you don't pray to Caesar, if you don't bow down to Caesar, you can be executed. That is the context here. That is how radical Peter's call to, to Peter's confession, sorry, is. And, the, and Jesus follows this on with saying, okay, yeah, I'm this, subver- you know, I'm this subversive king. I'm this king who comes before all worldly kingdoms. I'm this king who is going to demand total allegiance for you. And this is what allegiance to me is going to look like. And he says, allegiance to me is going to look like suffering. I remember when Brian preached a couple of years ago, Brian, on take up your cross. Do you remember it? And he said, your cross is not your mother-in-law. Do you remember that? Man, that stuck with me so much. I'm I'm going to spend the week with my mother-in-law and Brian's words are ringing in my ears. Because Jesus, having been declared king, says, yes, I am king. Yes, I am king over, over all pagan kings, over all worldly kings, over all earthly kings. And this is what following me looks like. To take up your cross. To die to self. And to follow me. For whoever wants to find their life will lo- will lose, needs to lose it. You need to die to self. Sorry, I'm just trying to find, there was such a brilliant quote. It talked about how we uh, aren't even willing to die from embarrassment (laughs) when we're called to follow Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I already mentioned Nazi Germany because he said the cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls us, follow me, he bids us come and die. Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but on a walk into danger and risk. Or did we suppose that the kingdom of God would mean merely a few minor adjustments in our ordinary lives? In the shadow of Caesar, in the shadow of earthly kingdoms, Peter says, you are the Christ. And the call to those who truly follow is not only to know the name of Jesus, 
but to follow in the way of Jesus. The gospel is changing direction now. And Bill will say more about that next week. But the gospel is changing direction now. It's like full steam ahead towards Jerusalem. Luke puts it that Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. My question for me and for us is, are we willing to resolutely follow Jesus in the shadow of empires and things that would call us to bow down to them? Are we willing to be people who will have the crossbar strapped to our shoulders and walk that road? Or are we just playing at it? The cross, and with this I close if the band want to come up. The cross is the heart of the gospel. And bearing a cross is a central requirement of disciple. Making the confession that Jesus is Christ is not enough. If he is the Christ, then he expects to be followed and obeyed. He does not ask for modest adjustments in our behavior. He calls for a complete overhaul. He calls us to carry our cross. Let's pray. Then we'll worship if you've got children and king's kids, if you could go out and collect them at that point. But let's stand and pray together. Jesus, we again thank you for your word, Lord. We wish we had so much more time to just continue to delve into it and talk to each other about it and to grapple with it. But Father, we pray and ask that by your spirit, you would continue to teach us, that you would take the things that we need to hear. And Lord, there is so much and more that we need to hear and that you would transform us, that we would not have that arrested development that we so often have, but that we would be people who are growing up in our salvation now that we have seen and tasted that the Lord is good. So would you have your way in us, we pray. Transform us, we ask, for your praise and glory. Amen.